I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, and this is Leading Improvements in Higher Education, a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis. Our sponsor for this season is Watermark. This episode features Tracy Penny Light and Susan Kahn, two board members from ABLE, the Association for Authentic, Experiential, and Evidence-Based Learning. Tracy is president and board chair of the association and is also professor and director of the Leadership and Excellence in Academic Development Division at St. George's University, Granada, West Indies. Susan directed IUPUI's ePortfolio initiative for 12 years and currently serves as the campus's director of planning and institutional improvement initiatives. She is ABLE's past board chair. And with me is co-editor of the 2019 book, Trends in Assessment. Our time with Tracy and Susan will discuss how ePortfolios provide powerful learning, integration, and reflection opportunities for students, including the important work ABLE is doing in this space. All on this episode of Leading Improvements in Higher Education. We are here with Tracy and Susan from ABLE, the Association for Authentic, Experiential, and Evidence-Based Learning. You may learn more about their work at ABLE.org. That's A-A-E-E-B-L.org. ABLE.org. You know, I feel like I'm on Wheel of Fortune and need to buy lots of vowels. Tracy, Susan, welcome to the program. We're glad you're here. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Great. Well, let's begin, Tracy, with you. We'll start uh, with a simple question. What is the mission of ABLE and what audience does the association serve? And I'd also like to hear about how you became involved with ABLE. Sure. Well, ABLE is really the international professional development community for ePortfolio practitioners and researchers. And so, as you might guess, we are an international community, and our mission really is to empower folks who are doing work with portfolios or even those who are thinking about it and wondering how they can get started to really do that work well. Um, and I think that's a key theme you're going to hear today is our mission is really to support the implementation of portfolios well so that students really are able to be successful and the faculty are successful without um, really having people reinvent the wheel. And I became involved with ABLE right at the outset. So the former founder and president Trent Batson had approached myself and Helen Chen and Darren Cambridge, three sort of early ePortfolio practitioners with the idea of creating ABLE. And we sort of got behind him and said, yes, it's a great idea. And he went ahead and created the organization and I've been involved ever since. So that was in 2009. Tracy, thanks. Susan, likewise, how did you become involved with ABLE and what have been some of the changes in ABLE since its founding? Well, I was invited by the founders of ABLE to join the board um, shortly after Tracy became involved, I think. And our idea was to form a professional association for e-portfolio practitioners and researchers. At that time, there was really very little research and, and perhaps a, a smaller community of practitioners. 
Um, ABLE has evolved quite a bit since its founding. We've learned much more about how to use e-portfolios effectively, what kinds of learning designs, what kinds of pedagogical approaches, um, what kinds of assessment approaches are effective and valuable um, with e-portfolios. The discussions at the conference are much more sophisticated. There is a research base now, a very robust research base on e-portfolios. Um, it really has developed as a field, and ABLE is, it, to my mind, largely responsible for that development. You both have mentioned ABLE being a, an international professional development community of scholars and practitioners involved in the work of ePortfolio. And Tracy, let's take a step back and, and just begin with some basics. What is an ePortfolio? And how does an e-portfolio enhance student learning? That's a great question, Stephen. Thanks for asking. You know, it's one of those things that people often ask exactly that question, what is an e-portfolio? And I think at a basic level, what we would say is that it's really an opportunity for and a space for learners and You know, I use that word broadly because a learner could be a faculty member, but usually we're talking about students and it's a space where they're able to document their learning using evidence from their various learning experiences to reflect the connections that they're making between those experiences. And the portfolio really is a space that can pay attention to their unique attributes. And so one of the things that we think is really valuable about portfolios is it allows the learner to create and make sense of their own identity as a learner and as a professional. And, you know, it gives them an opportunity to really make connections and transfer the knowledge um, that they have between and among contexts. And so that whole ability really celebrates students' authentic identities and gives them an opportunity to make that visible to an audience wider than the professor. It could just be the professor they're creating the portfolio for, but often what we see is students creating their portfolios with the view of being able to share their learning experiences to a broader audience, which may include family and friends, may include future employers, might include uh, graduate schools, different kinds of things. So I think for me, where I really found you know, initially the most benefit is that it was a a window into the lives of my students in a way that, you know, connected to my course outcomes. So I could ask them to tell me, you know, what did you learn in this class? And also how does it connect to other learning that's happening elsewhere? And what students often say is, gee, nobody really often asks me that question, you know, and, and, and it also privileges that students aren't blank slates when we get them. They've had lots of learning and experiences that are relevant and meaningful for them that we ought to leverage into the work that we do with them in higher education. So it's a really rich space, I think, for collaboration, communication, documentation, where students get to take ownership for their learning and, and let us know how the work we're doing is helping them. Tracy, you mentioned some important elements there, uh, documenting uh, learning using evidence, making connections in their learning for students, and then uh, helping students to make sense of their identity, all part of what an ePortfolio endeavors to do and its contribution to student learning and development. Susan, let's turn our attention to the, the E in ePortfolio. Of course, the E stands for electronic, so electronic portfolios. What makes the E 
as an electronic in ePortfolio important? How do ePortfolios differ from traditional types of portfolios? I'm so glad you asked that question, Stephen. Um, uh, maybe I should clarify what a traditional portfolio is. A traditional portfolio is a paper portfolio that students assemble that includes selected artifacts of their academic and perhaps their non-academic work, usually with some reflective writing um, inter interspersed with those other artifacts. And that certainly has some value. Um, but I do think that the E changes the portfolio into something fundamentally different. And Tracy spoke to some of that. In the early days, I used to say that the advantages of the E were portability, accessibility, and authenticity. And by authenticity, I mean that in an e-portfolio, you can include work created in various media. So you could have a videotape of a teacher education student teaching a class, and that could be accompanied in the e-portfolio by a lesson plan, um, by other materials that the teacher might have used in conjunction with that lesson, and then by a reflection on what happened. So you have something that can be much more fully contextualized. Um, and that changes the way that a viewer or reader of the ePortfolio would understand a given artifact. It's not just a piece of paper. It's not just the lesson plan. It's not just the reflection. It's all of these different things that are there in relation to one another. And so I've started to move into some of the um, additional advantages of the E. A website and a file folder are two fundamentally different things. A website is a knowledge structure. The components are in relation to one another um, in terms of uh, menus, links, narrative that contextualizes what you're looking at as you make your way through the portfolio. So students need to think about how to configure all of that in a way that makes sense. And that is part of what we refer to as e-portfolio making, uh, that reflective process of creating all of those different elements of an e-portfolio and presenting oneself or at least one's academic or professional self on a website. One thing that Tracy alluded to, I think, is, is that e-portfolios include a lot more information about the student, and they fundamentally change relationships between instructors and students, and, and even relationships among students. And I'm going to go back again to that idea of accessibility that I mentioned at the beginning of my response because um, in our current situation, in, in the pandemic situation where uh, many students are learning remotely or in hybrid formats, sharing their e-portfolios with one another 
can create a sense of community, some of that sense of community that may be lost when you move away from traditional face-to-face teaching. I I would say even in a traditional face-to-face classroom, sharing e-portfolios can help to create a sense of community. But I think in the situation that we're in now, that very basic advantage of the e-portfolio being online and accessible to anyone with access to the internet um, has really taken on a, a new kind of importance. Susan, you were mentioning some keywords: uh, portability, accessibility, authenticity, the notion that context uh, for artifacts of learning is evident in e-portfolios and is is possible, uh, that there are relational components to these, and central to everything is the notion of reflection. How important is reflection in the making and uh, producing and and sharing of an electronic portfolio? If I could ask Susan a follow-up to the reflection question there. Well, putting the portfolio together is itself a reflective process because of the way that you are constructing things in relation to one another, the way that you're thinking about communicating, ideally thinking about communicating with an audience and constructing coherent uh, pathways through the portfolio. There are lots of different kinds of reflections that students can do in an e-portfolio. They can do a reflection on a single piece of work that illuminates what the student was thinking in the process of creating that artifact. Or reflection can look across artifacts and and speak to the relationships among the artifacts. That's what Tracy was talking about uh, just a few minutes ago uh, when she talked about e-portfolios helping students to integrate their learning um, and to see what it all adds up to. You're putting things together in one place. And I think that when you put them together on the web, you do uh, look at them in context in a way that you might not if you're selecting works to put into a a paper portfolio. Um, We have simply seen evidence that um, students gain insights into what their learning means, what their learning experiences mean in relation to one another. Um, They begin to understand their their learning, ideally, as adding up to something meaningful rather than consisting of just a bunch of courses. Tracy, ABLE sponsors uh, the Field Guide to ePortfolios and the ABLE ePortfolio Review. And you also co-sponsor the International Journal of ePortfolio. What are some of the themes uh, of recent articles and scholarly contributions from these various publications? There are all kinds of themes. I mean, I think that one of the things that we saw early on in the research literature were almost uh, case studies and reports about the ways that people were using portfolios to foster this kind of reflection and meaning making that Susan just spoke about. Um, Certainly, we've seen over time focus on, you know, integrative learning and different kinds of um, ways that the portfolio 
connects with and enhances other high-impact practices. But more recently, I think what we're seeing in the research literature, which is really exciting because early on, the the, the quote-unquote research base wasn't so researchy, if that makes sense. You know, that the idea of practitioner research was perhaps not as um, strong as it is now in, in the literature. So we're definitely seeing more practitioner research um, emerge in those various um, outlets and faculty really kind of engaging in the scholarship of teaching and learning to better understand the ways that these different approaches and practices will, you know, enable their students to learn more deeply um, or become more engaged. We're also seeing attention being paid to things like professional development and employability. So that's that's been an issue that's certainly been of top of mind for many practitioners in the recent past, because of course we know our students come come to us with the idea that they're going to have a career or a job at the end of their, their university study. I think more exciting for me at this moment, and that's probably because of my own um, interest and role in faculty development, is that there's much more focus on faculty development and research about the ways that we can engage faculty in thinking about how they um, encourage their students to um, create these stories of learning in their portfolios. And so part of that comes out of some really great work that Brett Einan and Laura Gambino sort of headed up with a Connect to Learning project where they had a number of campuses focusing on, you know, what does it mean for us to do e-portfolios well? Um, and, and so they've developed a number of um, research projects that speak to that. And we know that in order to do ePortfolio as well, we really need to help faculty to think through what is it that I want my students to know, understand, or be able to do at the end of either a particular course or at the end of a program, and really thinking about the ways that the ePortfolio can integrate into that work to support student learning. You know, if we don't train the faculty to think about how they can do that well and to get them to think in an iterative and reflective way about their own teaching, we know that there's often a disconnect. That loop doesn't get closed for students. And so I'm really excited about the the research um, and the literature that's coming out that does focus on this idea of faculty development. How do we set faculty up for success in doing portfolio work? Um, and also, how do we integrate our thinking about portfolios into the broader curriculum? So that, um, you know, the, the professional development itself is both wide and deep. You know, we're increasing attention to practitioner researchers, uh, to practitioner research, but we're also thinking about new approaches to assessment. So what does this mean when we think about assessment on our campuses? How do we get at perhaps, as Susan um, talks about, the ineffable outcomes that you know, I think most of us are really keen to to develop in our students. So it's not just the critical thinking and the reading and writing and analysis skills, but also um, their own personal development and identity development throughout their university careers and how we can really celebrate each individual as a unique learner and find ways to illuminate that within the portfolio that also is helpful to us as we think about how do we assess our programs at uh, universities more broadly. So, you know, a long-winded answer to say lots more on professional development and faculty development, lots more on employability, lots more about and continuing to, to be there with respect to reflection and meaning making in relation to student development. So really interesting kind of um, 
focus, I think, right now in the literature uh, when we think about ePortfolios. So it's not just about stories of here's how I how, here's how I did it on my campus, but rather looking at the the work of portfolios in a deeper and more um, holistic way that pays attention to the various stakeholders that might be interested in um, the outcomes that get represented in portfolios themselves. Tracy, thanks so much. I would invite our listeners to visit able.org. That's A-A-E-E-B-L dot org, able.org, to access additional resources uh, from the publications we've been discussing. Susan, in our 2019 co-edited book entitled Trends and Assessment, you wrote a chapter devoted to ePortfolio Trends. What are some of the enduring and emerging trends you have observed related to ePortfolios? Well, um, thank you for that question, Stephen. An important trend right now is the idea of ePortfolios as a high-impact practice, which Tracy uh, talked about just now, and and we'll talk about a little more um, coming up. The fact that ePortfolios have been recognized as a high-impact practice when done well has, I I think, led people to think about them a little bit differently, Uh, to think about ePortfolios as not just an assessment methodology, um, but as as a learning experience that needs to be designed in a smart way for students to benefit from it. So we're we're thinking a lot more about what are the elements of a meaningful e-portfolio experience? What kinds of pedagogical approaches work best with e-portfolios and help e-portfolios to be high impact? How do we integrate e-portfolios into the curriculum um, in an effective way so that it really supports students' general education learning or disciplinary learning or uh, whatever is relevant in the particular context. So we'll talk about that a little bit more coming up. Understanding an e-portfolio as a composition rather than just a collection or rather than just a container of artifacts. And here is where we come back to the E and the website as a coherent structure. It's not just a, an assemblage of pieces of work. Um, it's something that is a piece of work in itself and that says something about the student, hopefully, Uh, presents a a narrative of learning or uh, presents a portrait of the student's multifaceted abilities at a point in time. So seeing the e-portfolio as a holistic piece of work rather than as uh, just a bunch of artifacts. Um, And then holistic assessment of e-portfolios to get at those more complex so-called ineffable learning outcomes to get at uh, some of the developmental aspects um, of higher education, um, to understand the student's academic and professional development and identity development. I I think that Tracy also 
alluded to that. So um, e-portfolios as a high impact practice, a different understanding of portfolios as holistic compositions that provide a narrative, a learning narrative, or a portrait, or make an argument about the student's learning, and holistic assessment rather than piecemeal assessment of artifacts to to better understand how students, how, how and how well students have mastered complex learning and, and have uh, developed as professionals, students, and people. Susan, you're recounting some of the trends related to e-portfolios coming from the co-edited volume you and I produced in 2019 entitled Trends in Assessment. Tracy, uh, the 2020 conference was just held recently. What, uh, and it was actually held virtually, we should, we should add. What were some of the important takeaway lessons from the various presentations at this year's ABLE conference? Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, it was really exciting to run our conference this year. Um, obviously, you know, given that we're in the midst of this global pandemic, we weren't able to meet in person, which is one of the highlights of the year for the ePortfolio community because we are very much a community that enjoys networking and sharing with one another. So the conference itself, if I can just say a couple of words about the structure, I think we really made an attempt to meet people where they were at. And so we did have a new model that we rolled out where participants were encouraged to learn some things on their own. We made access to some kickoff conversations and and content in advance of sessions where people would get together and actually start to apply and discuss those things together. And then where they could share Um, their learning over the course, we actually spread it over a whole month instead of our regular three-day conference. So we gave people lots of time and space to really reflect on what they were learning and to think about how they could integrate their learning into their own context. And so I think that was a really important lesson from this year's conference and maybe a reminder to everybody to really um, build in those e-portfolio practices of reflection and meaning making into all of the work that we're doing right now, since we're all, you know, very crazy and busy and um, maybe busier than ever in this new remote learning environment as we try to support our students in the best way possible. In terms of the actual presentations that happened at the conference, I think the things, some of the things that stood out for me um, were the interest that people had in developing their own portfolios. And so, again, going back to this notion of we know e-portfolios are a high-impact practice when done well, one of the key elements of doing them well is for the faculty member who's integrating them into their class or their program to really model for the students the kind of behavior that they want to see in them. So the one of the mantras we always speak about is that, you know, if you're not doing it yourself, we probably should ask our students to do it either. And so we have a community of practice called Out of Practice, which is for e-portfolio practitioners to develop their own portfolios and get feedback from other portfolio practitioners. And so that was a real highlight in the conference and something that we'll be carrying on throughout uh, the year as we give um, folks opportunities to kind of get back into practice by joining the out of practice community and, and getting feedback and kind of continually working on and reflecting on their own personal and professional development in their portfolios. 
Um, the other, I think, couple of important things that came out of the conference. First, we've had a, a task force or a community of inquiry working for the last year on digital ethics and portfolios. One thing that we you know, have been thinking about is the way that we can ethically engage with these practices. And so we've been speaking about students representing themselves in their portfolios, you know, making visible their own personal and professional identities. And I think there's some ethical considerations that we need to take into account when we're asking our students to do that, um, particularly when we're asking students who maybe come from non-traditional backgrounds, first-generation students, international students, and so on. And so really being mindful of the kinds of ethical practices that we need to infuse into the work of portfolios is essential. And so that task force has been has been working. They've launched their initial research, which you can find on the ABLE website, and we're actually continuing that work into year two. So they have put out a call and they're just about to start up round two of their digital ethics work because they realized that you know, one year wasn't enough to, to, to sort of capture and address all of the various layers of complexity that we need to consider when we think about um, digital ethics. You know, for instance, most um, faculty members wouldn't be aware of the end user agreements that institutions agree to when they purchase a particular e-portfolio platform for use on a campus. And so just little things like that, that, you know, for myself as a faculty member, it wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me to think about what kinds of privacy concerns and and other um, issues might I need to consider if I'm asking my students to do this kind of work. So I think that's really powerful work. And that, again, points to the need to pay really close attention to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues on our campus. Certainly, um, since the pandemic, but you know, more recently, we have become really aware of equity and access issues in higher education. And I think the portfolio um, space can create a really nice opportunity for us to have those conversations to really ensure that we're working with our students as partners to um, make uh, evident the, the equity and um, inclusivity issues that may exist and to sort of combat those through the use of portfolios. And so some great sessions happened where people were speaking about social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues, and how we might infuse that into the pedagogy of portfolios so that we make the learning experience better for everybody on our campuses, um, particularly those um, you know, students who are marginalized in, in some way. So, you know, I think those are some of the, the key things. Assessment always is, is an important, con- you know, idea that we're, that we explore at our conferences and, and employability um, was another thing that, um, that stood out. But I think if we can kind of keep the ethics and the um, equity and access issues top of mind, that's where I'd like to really ensure that we continue to have um, deep reflection and conversations about that so we can do even better work and support our students more effectively with um, e-portfolio practices. Tracy, thank you. I'd like to ask a follow-up question as it relates to digital ethics. uh, Perhaps you and Susan could both comment on the um, ownership of an e-portfolio and the ability or or Um, safeguarding, perhaps, of the learner's ability to protect their private information. They're they're showcasing artifacts of learning, reflection, identity development. Who owns this information? Um, How and for what purposes is it publicly shared? Sure, it's a great follow-up question. And one of the things that we would advocate at ABLE is that the, the student, the owner of the portfolio, 
always has control over who gets to see what. And so when we're um, promoting ePortfolios, we're really encouraging people to think through those issues and to create spaces for students to represent their learning on their own terms. So, you know, you know, it's, it's this tension that exists, I think, sometimes when we're using portfolios to demonstrate course or program learning outcomes, we're asking the students to represent um, what that looks like in their context and for themselves as learners. But we really want to make sure that they have control and we're not asking them to put anything out on a public site that they aren't prepared to put out there. And we've had lots of conversations with students about this, um, you know, because they, they we want to make sure that their identities are protected. And so there are lots of ways to do that within portfolio um, different portfolio tools where the student can decide, you know, it's only the professor that gets to see this. It's only um, maybe it's other students that gets to see it um, with, with their control in mind. So I think really paying attention to those issues. I once had a student say to me, you know, I feel like if I put a lot of personal information and stories in my portfolio, I'll get a better mark. And I, you know, it was a really good reminder for me to say, you know, and I thought I had been clear about that, that no, I'm not asking you to share personal stories necessarily. That's up to the individual learner to decide what makes sense and what evidence best represents their learning in a particular context. But it was a really good reminder to then go back to the whole class and say, just so you know, I'm not asking you to divulge any kind of personal information that you don't want to divulge, you know, and and um, putting that ownership in the hands of students, I think, is essential and um, and not creating um, equity issues where we we sort of put out the expectation or or somehow aren't aren't clear about the expectation that we aren't you know we aren't wanting students to share information that that they feel might be sensitive to them in a whole variety of contexts that maybe we aren't even thinking about. Um, so I, I think there's still a, quite a lot of work to do in that area, but you know ultimately the student has to own what gets shared and with whom. I would add that you do learn a lot about students, even from observing the differences among them in terms of how willing they they are to share aspects of their personal lives. Some students really do keep it strictly academic. Others are much more comfortable um, sharing more personal kinds of uh, details. And um, I, I, wa- I wanna just uh, tell a little anecdote, if I may. Um, I, I think the notion of ownership goes beyond ethics in that it influences how, how students relate to their portfolios. Um, I, I was teaching uh, an English major capstone class. I actually taught that uh, course for many years. But um, one year we were using a university-owned e-portfolio platform that was embedded in the learning management system. However, it was not the greatest platform. So students also had the choice of using a public web development tool like Wix, Weebly, uh, WordPress, 
what whatever they chose and and uh, the students were about half and half about half of them used the university owned e-portfolio platform about half of them used something else we were having students showing show their portfolios to one another uh, in the middle of the semester one year and um, a student shared her WordPress portfolio and talked about how she had decided to make her e-portfolio a blog about her learning and some of her other experiences and after she shared that, another student said, so this can be like your own personal website. And I said, yes, it can. Why? That's what it's intended to be. Why, why did you not understand that? He was using the university-owned platform. And he really, although he had a lot of control over it and what people could see and so forth, he really didn't look at it as his own, as a representation of him. And something about using an outside web development platform seemed to give him a much greater sense of ownership of his e-portfolio. He did switch his portfolio from the university-owned platform to an external one. But that always really struck me. And um, so I ask myself when I'm teaching students with portfolios, um, what are they using and how is the choice of tool influencing their sense of ownership of the portfolio and their sense of what the portfolio is actually about. I, I think that um, students can see the portfolio as more than just another assignment, but they need a little bit of encouragement and, and perhaps some clarification um, and perhaps some examples of other students' portfolios to um, understand that. And can I just add, Stephen, I think that these are so important and powerful issues to discuss because it makes me think about one of the conversations that came up at this year's conference and is definitely an ongoing theme in relation to digital ethics and beyond is what responsibility do we have as university teachers and administrators to ensure that our students are developing their own digital literacy um, skills as they work through our programs. And I mean, I definitely have many colleagues who say it's not my job to teach d digital literacy. And yet, if we're asking our students to and opening up spaces for them to create their portfolios in more open spaces where, you know, they can show their learning to a broader audience, what responsibility do we have to, to, to teach them about those skills? And yet, of course, they're already representing themselves in multiple ways online outside of our, our university context, you know, whether it's in, on social media um, or other places. So it's this interesting tension, I think, that um, is becoming more and more obvious in the current context, you know, a pandemic, you know, in the United States, you've got an election coming up. Um, you know, there's there are all kinds of political and social and cultural issues that are coming to the fore 
now, partly because we have access to so much information. And so where, where are the spaces for us as university faculty and administrators to really help our students to make the best choices in terms of how they represent um, themselves and their learning when we're working online. So there's some really interesting issues at play that I think we're gonna see much more attention being paid to in higher education moving forward. E-portfolios were recently named a high impact practice or a HIP. Why is this significant, Susan? And how are e-portfolios related to other high impact practices? It's tremendously significant. It legitimizes e-portfolios. E-portfolios are not as likely to be seen as some um, unusual thing that people on our campus are being asked to do. I think it's also elevated people's awareness of the kinds of practices that need to surround e-portfolios. High-impact practices have certain elements in common, significant effort invested over a period of time, interactions with faculty and peers, meaningful feedback, opportunities to reflect on and integrate learning and public demonstration of learning. For example, that's not all of the characteristics, but those are some of them. Um, These are as important, if not more important for e-portfolios as they are for the other 10 high-impact practices. And uh, I I, I think um, naming e-portfolios a high-impact practice has uh, stimulated more thinking about um, appropriate e-portfolio pedagogies and learning designs. E-portfolios relate to other HIPs in that they have certain characteristics in common with other HIPs if they're done well, but I also call e-portfolios a meta-HIP or a meta-high-impact practice. Tracy said earlier that e-portfolios can give us a window into uh, students' experiences, what students are thinking about, um, how they're interpreting their learning, and the various um, co-curricular experiences they may be having. Um, e-portfolios can give us the same kind of window into students' experiences of other high-impact practice. Um other high-impact practices. So if a student is involved in service learning or undergraduate research or studying abroad and making an e-portfolio or including that experience in their e-portfolio, we can essentially use one hip to understand how students are experiencing another hip. So just as metadata, our data that tell us about other data, and just as metacognition is cognition about cognition, um, a meta hip is a hip that tells us about other hips. We can learn a lot about whether we are designing those service learning or whatever experience experiences well if we 
look at students' e-portfolios and reflections on that experiences on that experience and representation of that experience. We can get an idea of whether um, hips are having the desired effect. Susan, thank you. I would like to also refer our listeners to another podcast episode by colleagues from the Hips in the States Network, uh, who can who can also uh, complement a lot of the remarks that Susan made in the answer to this question. I'd like to have both of you look ahead, and, and Tracy will come to you first for this question. Look ahead in the next few years. What do you see are some major trends uh, influencing or shaping higher education and how is ABLE positioning itself to respond to some of those trends? Tracy? That's a great question. And I think it, you know, just to echo some of the things that both Susan and I have said already, you know, I think equity and access issues are really important. And that, of course, dovetails into the whole idea, uh, idea of digital ethics and digital literacy. So, you know, thinking about the ways that e-portfolio practices and pedagogies can help to move ahead some of those ideas to make things, you know, to make learning experiences more equitable and accessible for students, um, you know, I think is, is really important. I think also, you know, we're seeing in this current moment that, you know, many of us are working in remote or hybrid models of learning. And so I think, again, to, to draw on what Susan was just speaking about in terms of high impact practices, there's a real opportunity for us to think a little bit more deeply about the ways that we can value students' learning experiences, broadly speaking. And that might be, you know, how they're in, in encountering our content and the learning designs in their own homes, what that looks like, how they're able to transfer what they're learning in a variety of contexts to other spaces, whether that's in terms of employment, community service learning, um, just basically living with their families, whatever that might look like. And so I think, again, the portfolio is real a real opportunity and provides some flexibility for students to represent that learning in a very holistic way. And I think we're going to see more and more attention being paid to the ways that we can engage students um, in, in kind of approaches that really stick and approaches that enable them to really take some ownership and responsibility for their learning. And more importantly, how we can value that learning, whether that's in kind of the grading systems and the learning designs that we create, whether it's in terms of the assessment practices that we engage in in higher education, so that we can really ensure that all of our students are having powerful learning experiences, and regardless of where they're having those experiences, whether it's in a residential context or whether um, it's at home. So, you know, I think there's some really interesting opportunities for us to deepen the portfolio work, focusing a little bit more on, you know, individual students' stories of learning and and also engaging students as partners in this process. I mean, I think that's one of the areas that we have been a little less successful at in ABLE is really leveraging the student experience into the work and the research that we do. And so it's definitely something we want to um, look to doing much more of in the future. Tracy was mentioning issues of equity and access and valuing student learning experiences, especially in remote and hybrid learning models. Susan, build on that and talk about some major trends you're seeing and how ABLE is prepared to address those trends. Stephen, I think that we are at a very interesting uh, moment. Um, We have some anecdotal information that 
e-portfolios help to um, fill in the gap um, that that's that's left when students are learning remotely and are are not seeing one another and their instructor face to face. The e-portfolios are personalizing the learning environment, creating a sense of community, helping people get to know each other. Um, there's anecdotal evidence of that. There, there hasn't really been any research yet. I mean, this has only been happening for six months now. Um, I, I think we probably have a way to go. I, I, I hope that some practitioners are thinking about what evidence they can gather during this period of the impact of e-portfolios on education in um, remote circumstances, um, emergency circumstances, rapidly changing circumstances. Uh, That will be very interesting to see. I I think that e-portfolios have the potential to be very powerful in the current moment. But I would like to go back to some of the meta trends that we talked about in our book on trends and assessment, published in 2019. Um, there were several meta trends that I think are particularly well aligned with e-portfolios. Three in particular. Um, one of our meta trends is that assessment is broadening its perspective on outcomes to include students' personal, academic, and professional development. Um, We are beginning to understand that students are not just packages of discrete competencies or uh, uh, assorted outcomes, and that looking at a bunch of outcomes is not necessarily adequate for evaluating students' preparation for the workforce or for citizenship or for uh, leading a well-thought-out, fulfilling life. Um, E-portfolios can capture, as we've been talking about, can capture students' holistic development in in ways that other kinds of artifacts of learning are much less likely to do. Um, This trend holds true at the graduate as well as the undergraduate level. Um, In graduate and professional education, there's a lot of conversation about professional formation, um, reflective practitioner. Um, So that really is a a fairly widespread trend. And show me the general education program that doesn't claim to develop the whole student. Uh, Ours at IUPUI certainly does. So um, I I think that's one important meta trend that uh, e-portfolios are especially compatible with. Um, One of our other meta trends is that assessment is beginning to focus on learning processes and experiences in addition to its traditional focus on outcomes. Uh, We've used the term outcomes assessment almost synonymously with the term assessment. But if assessment really is an effort to understand students' learning better than we do without assessment, then outcomes alone don't necessarily tell us everything that we need to know. Um, We also might want to know about 
students' understanding of their learning experiences, their reactions to their learning experiences, their, uh, when are they confused, uh, when are they suddenly um, illuminated, when do they suddenly understand things in a different way, um, how are they reacting to the learning environment, that can be a virtual environment or it might be a physical environment. Um, what are the experiences, practices, and environments that support the development of the outcomes that we want students to achieve? Uh, both the, the very um, narrow and specific competencies that students might need for a particular uh, profession, but also more complex skills and uh, and students' holistic development, as uh, I just talked about. So I think that in this way, by looking, by enabling us to look at uh, not only outcomes, but the learning process, um, which we can do not only by looking at the portfolio, but also by um, asking students to reflect and, and asking them the right kinds of questions to reflect on. Um, I think that these kinds of practices can move us toward more truly learner-centered assessment, improvement, and pedagogical practices. And finally, I'd like to mention a third trend. Uh, another trend is authentic measures are increasingly necessary and valued. Um, we said that students themselves can offer us the most direct and richest information about their learning. And we said that good authentic measures can offer actionable insights into how and why students learn in addition to what they learn. Um, E-portfolios are about as authentic as it gets. Um, and not only are we looking at the authentic work, but as we said earlier, we're looking at the authentic work in a rich context um, and with the student's personal stamp and interpretation uh, attached to that work. So um, I think e-portfolios are extremely valuable um, as, as an authentic assessment approach. As we draw our time together to a close, let me ask you both to offer a final thought you would like to leave our listeners with today. Susan, we'll come to you first, then conclude with Tracy. Susan. Okay. You won't get it right the first time. Um, E-portfolios are um, not necessarily easy. You can't just throw in an e-portfolio or an e-portfolio requirement and expect it to be high impact. You need to read the literature, get some professional development, have some experience with it. And when I say you won't get it right the first time, I mean that both for individual instructors and for programs. Uh, usually, as, as with other high impact practices, um, you do it the first time, and then you see how you can do it better the second time and how you can do it better the third time. So uh, e-portfolios are potentially incredibly powerful. 
but they probably won't be the first time you ever use them unless you talk to Tracy and me first. Well, let's hear from Tracy. Uh, Likewise, Tracy, your final thought of encouragement for our listeners today. Yeah, I think just to echo Susan, you know, we know that they're an authentic assessment measure when done well. And um, Susan's absolutely right. You know, it's impossible to do it well 100% of the time, the first time out of the block. In fact, most of us who are in the ePortfolio community are still learning. And and that's actually part of the process. You know, the engaging in these practices needs to be done so in an iterative and reflective way, just as we ask our students, you know, and so um, keep it simple and, and really leverage the power of the ePortfolio, international ePortfolio community that really is here to help. I mean, I think that's, if anything, I want to leave people with the idea that ABLE is a space and a place for you to come and get that help. You know, we, we know where to look for the research literature in your discipline. We know we've, we've tried approaches and figured out things that work well and things that are maybe not so successful. And so I think really leveraging the power of community is really important as we, as we move forward with these kinds of practices. I really encourage people to reach out and, um, and use us. That's what we're here for. We've been speaking with Tracy Penny Light and Susan Kahn from the Association for Authentic, Experiential, and Evidence-Based Learning, otherwise known as ABLE. Learn more at ABLE.org. That's A-A-E-E-B-L.org. Susan, Tracy, thanks so much for joining us today. Our pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having us. This has been Leading Improvements in Higher Education. Our sponsor for this season is Watermark. Learn more at watermarkinsights.com. This podcast is a service of the Assessment Institute in Indianapolis, and you can learn more at our website, assessmentinstitute.iupui.edu, where you can also access other episodes. Our producers are Chad Beckner, Caleb Keith, and Shirley Yorger, with original music composed by Caleb Keith. If you like our podcast, please spread the word and encourage others to give us a listen. We appreciate your support. I'm Stephen Hundley from IUPUI, inviting you to join us again for Leading Improvements in Higher Education.